Chapter 11 of The End of the Tether by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. Chapter 11 The End of the Tether. Stern crossed the deck upon the track of the chief engineer. Jack, the second, retreating backwards down the engine room ladder and still wiping his hands, treated him to an incomprehensible grin of white teeth out of his grimy, hard face. Massey was nowhere to be seen. He must have gone straight into his berth. Stern scratched at the door softly, then, putting his lips to the rose of the ventilator, said, I must speak to you, Mr. Massey. Just give me a minute or two. I'm busy. Go away from my door. But pray, Mr. Massey, you go away, do you hear? Take yourself off altogether. To the other end of the ship. Quite away. The voice inside dropped low. To the devil. Stern paused, then, very quietly. It's rather pressing. When do you think you will be at liberty, sir? The answer to this was an exasperated never, and at once Stern, with a very firm expression of face, turned the handle. Mr. Massey's stateroom, a narrow one-berth cabin, smelt strongly of soap and presented to view a swept, dusted, unadorned neatness, not so much bare as barren, not so much severe as starved and lacking in humanity, like the ward of a public hospital, or rather, owing to the small size, like the clean retreat of a desperately poor but exemplary person. Not a single photograph frame ornamented the bulkheads, not a single article of clothing, not as much as a spare cap hung from the brass hooks. All the inside was painted in one plain tint of pale blue. Two big sea chests in sailcloth covers and with iron padlocks fitted exactly in the space under the bunk. One glance was enough to embrace all the strip of scrubbed planks within the four unconcealed corners. The absence of the usual settee was striking. The teakwood top of the washing stand seemed hermetically closed, and so was the lid of the writing desk, which protruded from the partition at the foot of the bed place, containing a mattress as thin as a pancake under a threadbare blanket with a faded red stripe, and a folded mosquito net against the nights spent in harbour. There was not a scrap of paper anywhere in sight, no boots on the floor, no litter of any sort, not a speck of dust anywhere. No traces of pipe ash even, which in a heavy smoker was morally revolting, like a manifestation of extreme hypocrisy, and the bottom of the old wooden armchair, the only seat there, polished with much use, shone as if its shabbiness had been waxed. The screen of leaves on the bank, passing as if unrolled endlessly in the round opening of the port, sent a wavering network of light and shade into the place. Stern, holding the door open with one hand, had thrust in his head and shoulders. At this amazing intrusion, Massey, who was doing absolutely nothing, jumped up speechless. "'Don't call names,' murmured Stern hurriedly. "'I won't be called names. I think of nothing but your good, Mr. Massey.' A pause as of extreme astonishment followed. They both seemed to have lost their tongues. Then the mate went on with a discreet glibness. You simply couldn't conceive what's going on on board your ship. It wouldn't enter your head for a moment. You are too good, too, too upright, Mr. Massey, to suspect anybody of such a... It's enough to make your hair stand on end. He watched for the effect. Massey seemed dazed, uncomprehending. He only passed the palm of his hand on the coal-black wisps plastered across the top of his head. In a tone suddenly changed to confidential audacity, Stern hastened on. 
Remember that there's only six weeks left to run. The other was looking at him stonily. So anyhow, you shall require a captain for the ship before long. Then only, as if that suggestion had scarified his flesh in the manner of red-hot iron, Massey gave a start and seemed ready to shriek. He contained himself by a great effort. Require a captain, he repeated with scathing slowness. Who requires a captain? You dare to tell me that I need any of you humbugging sailors to run my ship? You and your likes have been fattening on me for years. It would have hurt me less to throw my money overboard. Pampered, useless frauds. The old ship knows as much as the best of you. He snapped his teeth audibly and growled through them. The silly law requires a captain. Stern had taken heart of grace meantime. And the silly insurance people too as well, he said lightly. But never mind that. What I want to ask is, why shouldn't I do, sir? I don't say, but you could take a steamer about the world as well as any of us sailors. I don't pretend to tell you that it is a very great trick. He uttered a short, hollow guffaw familiarly. I didn't make the law, but there it is, and I'm an active young fellow. I quite hold with your ideas. I know your ways by this time, Mr. Massey. I wouldn't try to give myself airs like that, that um, lazy specimen of an old man up there. He put a marked emphasis on the last sentence to lead Massey away from the track in case... But he did not doubt of now holding his success. The chief engineer seemed nonplussed, like a slow man invited to catch hold of a whirligig of some sort. What you want, sir, is a chap with no nonsense about him who would be content to be your sailing master. Quite right, too. Well, I am fit for the work as much as that serang, because that's what it amounts to. Do you know, sir, that a damn Malay like a monkey is in charge of your ship and no one else? Just listen to his feet pit-patting above us on the bridge. Real officer in charge. He's taking her up the river while the great man is wallowing in the chair, perhaps asleep. And if he is, that would not make it much worse either. Take my word for it. He tried to thrust himself farther in. Massey, with lowered forehead, one hand grasping the back of the armchair, did not budge. You think, sir, that the man has got you tight in his agreement? Massey raised a heavy, snarling face at this. Well, sir, one can't help hearing of it on board. It's no secret. And it has been the talk on shore for years. Fellows have been making bets about it. No, sir, it's you who have got him at your mercy. You will say that you can't dismiss him for indolence. Difficult to prove in court and so on. Why, yes. But if you say the word, sir, I can tell you something about his indolence that will give you the clear right to fire him out on the spot and put me in charge for the rest of this very trip. Yes, sir, before we leave Batu Beru and make him pay a dollar a day for his keep till we get back, if you like. Now, what do you think of that? Come, sir, say the word. It's really well worth your while, and I'm quite ready to take your bare word. A definite statement from you would be as good as a bond. His eyes began to shine. He insisted. A simple statement, and he thought to himself that he would manage somehow to stick in his berth as long as it suited him. He would make himself indispensable. The ship had a bad name in her port. It would be easy to scare the fellows off. Massey would have to keep him. A definite statement from me would be enough, Massey repeated slowly. Yes, sir, it would. Stern stuck out his chin cheerily and blinked at close quarters with that unconscious impudence which had the power to enrage Massey beyond anything. The engineer spoke very distinctly. 
Well, listen to me then, Mr. Stern. I wouldn't, do you hear? I wouldn't promise you the value of two pence for anything you can tell me. He struck Stern's arm away with a smart blow and, catching hold of the handle, pulled the door to. The terrific slam darkened the cabin instantaneously to his eye, as if after the flash of an explosion. At once he dropped into the chair. Oh, no, you don't, he whispered faintly. The ship had in that place to shave the bank so close that the gigantic wall of leaves came gliding like a shutter against the port. The darkness of the primeval forest seemed to flow into that bare cabin with the odour of rotting leaves, of sodden soil, the strong muddy smell of the living earth steaming uncovered after the passing of a deluge. The bushes swished loudly alongside. Above there was a series of crackling sounds, with a sharp rain of small broken branches falling on the bridge. A creeper with a great rustle snapped on the head of a boat davit, and a long, luxuriant green twig actually whipped in and out of the open port, leaving behind a few torn leaves that remained suddenly at rest on Mr. Massey's blanket. Then, the ship shearing out in the stream, the light began to return, but did not augment beyond a subdued clearness, for the sun was very low already, and the river, wending its sinuous course through a multitude of secular trees as if at the bottom of a precipitous gorge, had been already invaded by a deepening gloom, the swift precursor of the night. "'Oh, no, you don't,' murmured the engineer again. His lips trembled almost imperceptibly his hands too a little, and to calm himself he opened the writing desk, spread out a sheet of thin greyish paper covered with a mass of printed figures, and began to scan them attentively for the twentieth time this trip at least. With his elbows propped, his head between his hands, he seemed to lose himself in the study of an abstruse problem in mathematics. It was the list of the winning numbers from the last drawing of the great lottery which had been the one inspiring fact of so many years of his existence. The conception of a life deprived of that periodical sheet of paper had slipped away from him entirely, as another man, according to his nature, would not have been able to conceive a world without fresh air, without activity, or without affection. A great pile of flimsy sheets had been growing for years in his desk, while the Sophala, driven by the faithful Jack, wore out her boilers in tramping up and down the straits, from cape to cape, from river to river, from bay to bay accumulating by that hard labour of an overworked, starved ship the blackened mass of these documents. Massey kept them under lock and key like a treasure. There was in them, as in the experience of life, the fascination of hope, the excitement of a half-penetrated mystery, the longing of a half-satisfied desire. For days together on a trip he would shut himself up in his berth with them. The thump of the toiling engines pulsated in his ear, and he would weary his brain, poring over the rows of disconnected figures, bewildering by their senseless sequence, resembling the hazards of destiny itself. He nourished a conviction that there must be some logic lurking somewhere in the result of chance. He thought that he had seen its very form. His head swam. His limbs ached. He puffed at his pipe mechanically. A contemplative stupor would soothe the fretfulness of his temper, like the passive bodily quietude procured by a drug, while the intellect remains tensely on the stretch. Nine, nine, naught, four, two. He made a note. The next winning number of the great prize was forty-seven thousand and five. 
These numbers, of course, would have to be avoided in the future when writing to Manila for the tickets. He mumbled, pencil in hand, and five, hmm, hmm. He wetted his finger. The papers rustled. Ah, but what's this? Three years ago, in the September drawing, it was number nine, ought four, two that took the first prize. Most remarkable. There was a hint there of a definite rule. He was afraid of missing some recondite principle in the overwhelming wealth of his material. What could it be? And for half an hour he would remain dead still, bent low over the desk, without twitching a muscle. At his back the whole berth would be thick with a heavy body of smoke, as if a bomb had burst in there, unnoticed, unheard. At last he would lock up the desk with a decision of unshaken confidence, jump and go out. He would walk swiftly back and forth on that part of the foredeck which was kept clear of the lumber and of the bodies of the native passengers. They were a great nuisance, but they were also a source of profit that could not be disdained. He needed every penny of profit the Safala could make. Little enough it was in all conscience. The incertitude of chance gave him no concern, since he had somehow arrived at the conviction that, in the course of years, every number was bound to have his winning turn. It was simply a matter of time, and of taking as many tickets as he could afford for every drawing. He generally took rather more. All the earnings of the ship went that way, and also the wages he allowed himself as chief engineer. It was the wages he paid to others that he begrudged with a reasoned and at the same time a passionate regret. He scowled at the Laskers with their deck brooms, at the quartermasters rubbing the brass rails with greasy rags. He was eager to shake his fist and roar abuse in bad Malay at the poor carpenter, a timid, sickly, opium-fuddled Chinaman in loose blue drawers for all costume, who invariably dropped his tools and fled below with streaming tail and shaking all over before the fury of that devil. But it was when he raised up his eyes to the bridge, where one of these sailor frauds was always planted by law in charge of his ship, that he felt almost dizzy with rage. He abominated them all. It was an old feud from the time he first went to sea, an unlicked cub with a great opinion of himself in the engine room. The slights that had been put upon him, the persecutions he had suffered at the hands of skippers, of absolute nobodies in a steamship after all. And now that he had risen to be a ship owner, they were still a plague to him. He had absolutely to pay away precious money to the conceited, useless loafers, as if a fully qualified engineer, who was the owner as well, were not fit to be trusted with the whole charge of a ship. Well, he made it pretty warm for them, but it was a poor consolation. He had come in time to hate the ship too, for the repairs she required, for the coal bills he had to pay, for the poor beggarly freight she earned. He would clench his hand as he walked and hit the rail a sudden blow, viciously, as though she could be made to feel pain. And yet he could not do without her. He needed her. He must hang on to her tooth and nail to keep his head above water till the expected flood of fortune came sweeping up and landed him safely on the high shore of his ambition. It was now to do nothing, nothing whatever, and have plenty of money to do it on. He had tasted of power, the highest form of it his limited experience was aware of, the power of ship-owning. What a deception! Vanity of vanities! He wondered at his folly. He had thrown away the substance for the shadow. 
of the gratification of wealth he did not know enough to excite his imagination with any visions of luxury how could he the child of a drunken boiler maker going straight from the workshop into the engine room of a north country collier but the notion of the absolute idleness of wealth he could very well conceive he revelled in it to forget his present troubles he imagined himself walking about the streets of hull he knew their gutters well as a boy with his pockets full of sovereigns he would buy himself a house. His married sisters, their husbands, his old workshop chums would render him infinite homage. There would be nothing to think of. His word would be law. He had been out of work for a long time before he won his prize, and he remembered how Carlo Mariani, commonly known as Ponchi Charlie, the Maltese hotel keeper at the slummy end of Denham Street, had cringed joyfully before him in the evening when the news had come. Poor Charlie, though he made his living by ministering to various abject vices, gave credit for their food to many a piece of white wreckage. He was naively overjoyed at the idea of his old bills being paid, and he reckoned confidently on a spell of festivities in the cavernous grog shop downstairs. Massey remembered the curious, respectful looks of the trashy white men in the place. His heart had swelled within him. Massey had left Charlie's infamous den directly he had realised the possibilities open to him and with his nose in the air. Afterwards the memory of these adulations was a great sadness. This was the true power of money and no trouble with it, nor any thinking required either. He thought with difficulty and felt vividly. To his blunt brain the problems offered by any ordered scheme of life seemed in their cruel toughness to have been put in his way by the obvious malevolence of men. As a shipowner everyone had conspired to make him a nobody. How could he have been such a fool as to purchase that accursed ship? He had been abominably swindled. There was no end to the swindling. And as the difficulties of his improvident ambition gathered thicker round him he really came to hate everybody he had ever come in contact with. A temper naturally irritable and an amazing sensitiveness to the claims of his own personality had ended by making of life for him a sort of inferno, a place where his lost soul had been given up to the torment of savage brooding. But he had never hated anyone so much as that old man who had turned up one evening to save him from an utter disaster, from the conspiracy of the wretched sailors. He seemed to have fallen on board from the sky, his footsteps echoed on the empty steamer, and the strange, deep-toned voice on deck repeating interrogatively the words, Mr. Massey, Mr. Massey there, had been startling like a wonder. And coming up from the depths of the cold engine room, where he had been pottering dismally with a candle amongst the enormous shadows, thrown on all sides by the skeleton limbs of machinery, Massey had been struck dumb by astonishment in the presence of that imposing old man with a beard like a silver plate, towering in the dusk, rendered lurid by the expiring flames of sunset. "'Want to see me on business? What business? I'm doing no business. Can't you see that this ship is laid up?' Massey had turned at bay before the pursuing irony of his disaster. Afterwards he could not believe his ears. What was that old fellow getting at? Things don't happen that way. It was a dream. He would presently wake up and find the man vanished like a shape of mist. The gravity, the dignity, the firm and courteous tone of that athletic old stranger impressed Massey. He was almost afraid. But it was no dream. Five hundred pounds are no dream. At once he became suspicious. What did it mean? 
Of course, it was an offer to catch hold of for dear life, but what could there be behind? Before they had parted, after appointing a meeting in a solicitor's office early on the morrow, Massey was asking himself, what is his motive? He spent the night in hammering out the clauses of the agreement, a unique instrument of its sort, whose tenor got bruited abroad somehow and became the talk and wonder of the port. Massey's object had been to secure for himself as many ways as possible of getting rid of his partner without being called upon at once to pay back his share. Captain Wally's efforts were directed to making the money secure. Was it not Ivy's money, a part of her fortune, whose only other asset was the time-defying body of her old father? Sure of his forbearance and the strength of his love for her, he accepted with stately serenity Massey's stupidly cunning paragraphs against his incompetence, his dishonesty, his drunkenness, for the sake of other stringent stipulations. At the end of three years, he was at liberty to withdraw from the partnership, taking his money with him. Provision was made for forming a fund to pay him off, but if he left the Safala before the term from whatever cause, barring death, Massey was to have a whole year for paying. Illness, the lawyer had suggested, a young man fresh from Europe and not overburdened with business, who was rather amused. Massey began to whine unctuously. How could he be expected... Let that go, Captain Wally had said, with a superb confidence in his body. Acts of God, he added. In the midst of life we are in death, but he trusted his maker with a still greater fearlessness, his maker who knew his thoughts, his human affections, and his motives. His creator knew what use he was making of his health, how much he wanted it. I trust my first illness will be my last. I've never been ill that I can remember, he had remarked. Let it go. But at this early stage he had already awakened Massey's hostility by refusing to make it six hundred instead of five. I cannot do that, was all he had said, simply, but with so much decision that Massey desisted at once from pressing the point, but had thought to himself, can't, oh curmudgeon, won't, he must have lots of money, but he would like to get hold of a soft berth and the sixth part of my profits for nothing if he only could. And during these years Massey's dislike grew under the restraint of something resembling fear. The simplicity of that man appeared dangerous. Of late he had changed, however, had appeared less formidable and with a lessened vigour of life, as though he had received a secret wound. But still he remained incomprehensible in his simplicity, fearlessness and rectitude. And when Massey learned that he meant to leave him at the end of the time, to leave him confronted with the problem of boilers, his dislike blazed up secretly into hate. It had made him so clear-eyed that for a long time now Mr. Stern could have told him nothing he did not know. He had much ado in trying to terrorise that mean sneak into silence. He wanted to deal alone with the situation, and incredible as it might have appeared to Mr. Stern, he had not yet given up the desire and the hope of inducing that hated old man to stay. Why, there was nothing else to do unless he were to abandon his chances of fortune. But now, suddenly, since the crossing of the bar at Batu Beru, things seemed to be coming rapidly to a point. It disquieted him so much that the study of the winning numbers failed to soothe his agitation, and the twilight in the cabin deepened, very sombre. He put the list away, muttering once more, Oh no, my boy, you don't. Not if I know it. He did not mean the blinking, eavesdropping humbug to force his action. 
He took his head again into his hands. His immobility, confined in the darkness of this shut-up little place, seemed to make him a thing apart, infinitely removed from the stir and the sounds of the deck. He heard them. The passengers were beginning to jabber excitedly. Somebody dragged a heavy box past his door. He heard Captain Wally's voice above. "'Stations, Mr. Stern!' and the answer from somewhere on deck forward. "'Aye, aye, sir. "'We shall more head upstream this time. "'The ebb has made. "'Head upstream, sir. "'You will see to it, Mr. Stern.' "'The answer was covered by the autocratic clang "'on the engine-room gong. "'The propeller went on beating slowly. "'One, two, three. "'One, two, three. "'With pauses as if hesitating on the turn.' The gong clanged time after time, and the water churned this way and that by the blades was making a great noisy commotion alongside. Mr. Massey did not move. A shore light on the other bank, a quarter of a mile across the river, drifted, no bigger than a tiny star, passing slowly athwart the circle of the port. Voices from Mr. Van Wick's jetty answered the hails from the ship. Ropes were thrown and missed and thrown again, the swaying flame of a torch carried in a large sampan coming to fetch away in state the Rajah from down the coast cast a sudden ruddy glare into his cabin, over his very person. Mr. Massey did not move. After a few last ponderous turns, the engines stopped, and the prolonged clanging of the gong signified that the captain had done with them. A great number of boats and canoes of all sizes boarded the offside of the Safala. Then, after a time, the tumult of splashing, of cries, of shuffling feet, of packages dropped with a thump, the noise of the native passengers going away, subsided slowly. On the shore, a voice, cultivated, slightly authoritative, spoke very close alongside. "'Brought any mail for me this time?' "'Yes, Mr. Van Wick.' This was from Stern, answering over the rail in a tone of respectful cordiality. "'Shall I bring it up to you?' But the voice asked again, "'Where's the captain?' "'Still on the bridge, I believe. He hasn't left his chair. Shall I?' The voice interrupted negligently. "'I'll come on board.' Mr. Van Wick, Stern, suddenly broke out with an eager effort. "'Will you do me the favour? The mate walked away quickly towards the gangway. A silence fell. Mr. Massey in the dark did not move. He did not move even when he heard slow, shuffling footsteps pass his cabin lazily. He contented himself to bellow out through the closed door, You! Jack! The footsteps came back without haste. The door handle rattled, and the second engineer appeared in the opening, shadowy in the sheen of the skylight at his back, with his face apparently as black as the rest of his figure. We've been very long coming up this time, Mr. Massey growled without changing his attitude. What do you expect with half the boiler tubes plugged up for leaks? The second defended himself loquaciously. None of your lips, said Massey. None of your rotten boilers, I say, retorted his faithful subordinate without animation, huskily. Go down there and carry a head of steam on them yourself, if you dare. I don't. You aren't worth your salt then, Massey said. The other made a faint noise which resembled a laugh, but might have been a snarl. "'Better go slow than stop the ship altogether,' he admonished his admired superior. Mr. Massey moved at last. He turned in his chair and, grinding his teeth, "'Damn you and the ship! I wish you were at the bottom of the sea! Then you would have to starve!' 
The trusty second engineer closed the door gently. Massey listened. Instead of passing on to the bathroom where he should have gone to clean himself, the second engineer entered his cabin, which was next door. Mr. Massey jumped up and waited. Suddenly he heard the lock snap in there. He rushed out and gave a violent kick to the door. "'I believe you are locking yourself up to get drunk,' he shouted. A muffled answer came after a while. "'My own time!' If you take to boozing on the trip, I'll fire you out, Massey cried. An obstinate silence followed that threat. Massey moved away, perplexed. On the bank, two figures appeared, approaching the gangway. He heard a voice tinged with contempt. I rather doubt your word, but I shall certainly speak to him of this. The other voice, stern, said with a sort of regretful formality, Thanks, that's all I want. I must do my duty. Mr. Massey was surprised. A short, dapper figure leapt lightly on the deck and neatly bounded into him where he stood beyond the circle of light from the gangway lamp. When it had passed towards the bridge, after exchanging a hurried good evening, Massey said surlily, when it had passed towards the bridge, after exchanging a hurried good evening, Massey said surlily to Stern, who followed with slow steps, what is it you're making up to Mr. Wick for now? Far from it, Mr. Massey. I'm not good enough for Mr. Van Wick. Neither are you, sir, in his opinion, I'm afraid. Captain Welly is, it seems. He's gone to ask him to dine up at the house this evening. Then he murmured to himself darkly, I hope he will like it. End of chapter 11